Hey, sit down listeners. You can find us every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. You know how I get ready for St. Patty's Day? It's all about St. Practice Day because practice makes proper. Proper number 12 Irish whiskey is a rich and smooth blend of golden grain and single malt, aged four years in bourbon barrels. Or try Irish Apple, a delicious blend of Proper's award-winning Irish whiskey with crisp and fresh notes of Irish Apple. Join me for a proper St. Paddy's Day and find yourself some proper number 12 Irish whiskey. Pour the roar. Welcome to The Sit Down, a Mafia History podcast. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of The Sit Down, a Mafia History podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nadu. Hope you're having a great day wherever you are. It is that time of the week, another day, another dollar, another week, another sit down. We are here live. It's a busy week for me. Got a lot going on. Uh, as many of you know, I'm a big sports better, and it is the week of the NCAA tournament. And I know many years ago, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, there were many bookmakers in the mafia that look forward to this time of the year. The betters descended on their books uh, and put in tons of action. And as we know over the years, the mob has always made a lot of money bookmaking. I know for me, though, it is a fun time of the year. I love college basketball. And I hope you guys uh, check it out as well. I know a lot of people will. A lot of you guys are gamblers, so should be a fun week. But it's that time to take a little bit of time away from our regular lives and immerse ourselves in some mafia knowledge. Got a great show today planned for you. And we're going to talk about, I know a lot of people have enjoyed some of the times where we go off the beaten path a little bit. We talk about someone maybe you didn't know about someone you maybe have heard a little bit about or really just someone you wanted to learn more about. Today, we're going to do that. We're going to delve into an individual um, that quite possibly could have been one of the largest drug traffickers in the history of the American mafia. We're going to talk about a friend to Vito Genovese, a friend to Carmine Galanti, a friend to a lot of people in New York in the 50s and 60s. We're going to talk today about Joe Beck D. Palermo, one of the most interesting people in the history of the mob. He looked like a uh, bookworm nerd in school, but he was ultimately a very violent individual who put a lot of drugs on the street over the years. And we're going to talk about him and his connections uh, to Vito Genovese, to Carmine Galanti, to the Lucchese crime family, and really talk about something that you know, quite honestly, over the years, we know the mob has been involved in drugs. We've heard more mostly about what the mob is outlawing and they don't want you to do. We don't necessarily know a ton about the people that were actually involved. And when we did Carmen Galante, we talked about him and how very much close he was with drugs. We've talked about Gene Gotti. We've talked about some of those people. But Joe Beck de Palermo is truly one of the biggest of the big, and, and we're going to talk about him in just a little bit. But before we do that, I wanted to answer one insular question that I get all the time. And we've talked about some current things. We've talked about who's in control of some of these families today. And someone asked me recently about how many crime families are still in 
circulation? How many are still out there? How many are still doing business? How many are still something that we can call a mafia family? And when I hear the word, the words mafia family, I think to myself, okay, who is actually still going strong? So I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the first 15 or so minutes of the show. As always, before though we do that, I do want to let you know, please go check us out uh, on Twitter at the sit down seven, always tweeting out show news and getting people involved in Q and A's and things like that. So check out uh, our show on uh, uh, Twitter and, and go follow us. Also, please go check us out on YouTube. Um, one of my favorite parts of this show is being able to grow um, not only our show, but our YouTube channel. I put a lot of great content up there. So go check us out. Just type in the sit down and mafia history podcast and it'll come right up. Make sure you subscribe and like the videos. I think you might enjoy it, especially if you like our mob content here on the sit down. But definitely enjoy our YouTube channel that really goes hand in hand with what we're doing. I also want to let everybody know that after thinking about it for a couple of weeks, I'm finally going to release uh, my interview next week with an individual named Frank Fortolino. Frank Fortolino was a pretty heavy associate, the Bonanno crime family. He came up in uh, Middle Village, Queens, uh, in the Giannini crew. Um, he was very connected. His fa- family was in the mob, and he would become pretty close to people like Joe Messino and other people. And we're going to hear his story. And I was really questioning whether I was going to do it because over the times that we've had this show, we've definitely talked down about informants. You know, informants are bad people. Um, they're they're snitches. They're tattletales. But I was presented with an opportunity to talk to Frank, and I felt like it would be an injustice to not bring him on because, you know, whether I agree with what Frank did or not, um, I'm not in his position. And I just urge you to listen to it with an open mind. I think he's a really interesting guy. He told me a lot of great stories. Um, this is an individual that was around some really tough people. He came up in a tough neighborhood uh, with a lot of kids that were destined for lives in the mob. And, um, I thought we had a great conversation. So next week, we're going to play that interview. And um, I urge you to take it, give it a listen, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. And I really just want to take a quick little look at where we are in America right now. What does the mob look like uh, in the United States? It's definitely a lot smaller than it once was. And I guess I kind of asked myself, okay, what families are still around? What ones are still going? And obviously, all five New York families are still around the Lucchese, the Bonanno, the Colombo, the Gambino, and the Genovese family, they're still all going strong. Now, the level of how strong they are, I think is a little bit, it's a little bit more pronounced than others, right? So the big boys are always going to be the Genovese crime family, the Gambino crime family, the Bonanno is still plenty of people out there. Lucchese is still pretty strong. The Colombo family is on its last legs. And you have to wonder where the Colombo family is going to go over the next couple of years, um, after the recent indictment that really took down pretty much the entire hierarchy of the Colombo crime family, we have to remember, I mean, the, the boss of the family, alleged boss, Mush Russo, is in his 80s. Um, he's not going to be around much longer. Um, you know, we look at the underboss, I mean, Benji Costalzo, he's pretty old. I think he's going to get a pretty long prison sentence. Um, the consigliere, Ralph Matteo. I mean, he... A lot of people didn't know who Ralph Matteo was for a long period of time. I don't think he's incredibly powerful or anything. Um, you you got to wonder, where does the family go? Teddy Persco is going to go away for a while. Um, where, where does the family go from here? I think that's going to be interesting. You know, we'll, we'll see who kind of takes the reins as kind of the new person in control. I feel like I have some ideas on who that's going to be. 
Um, but it's interesting to figure this out. This family has been destroyed over the years by obviously informants and obviously just guys that have went to jail. I mean, whether it's Jackie DeRoss or, 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 or the Persco group or, or whoever, um, this family has had to deal with a lot of nonsense over the years. And a lot of it's had to do with the fact that they just wore too much. I mean, what families went to war more than the Columbos? Nobody. I mean, they're always fighting. They're always going at each other. You also look at a lot of the rats they've had over the years, whether it was Carmine Sessa or Dino Calabra or, 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 or Anthony Russo, you know, or, or Larry Mazza. You know, they, they've had some success, you know, John Franzese, Michael Franzese, uh, some of the money they made over the years. But this family has been a complete mess and they're on their last legs. And I think we all know that. We look around at the rest of the country. Chicago is still going. Um, it's definitely not what it once was, but the outfit has always been respected. It's low key. It's quiet. They don't do a ton. Um, they've always been a group that really just lets their people do the talking. They have some pretty powerful people still in control. Uh, if you know anything about the leadership out there, they've got soldiers everywhere. They're still very deep. Okay. They still have a lot of guys around. Um, they're definitely not quiet by any means. They've got a lot going on. They still have people in Cicero. They still have people in Emerald Park. They still have people downtown. They still have people everywhere. This is still a really pretty powerful group. Are they the, 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 the forays of crime in, in, in Chicago now? No. Um, do they have the political connections? Do they have the, the schemes and, and the corruption that they once had? No. Um, but there's still people around. And they have some pretty strong people, uh, Grand Avenue people that, that are in control. So um, yeah, they're definitely still around. Detroit is still around. And I know that because um, I talk all the time about Detroit with one of my cohorts, Scott Bernstein, who's the king of, of Detroit mob history. You know, Jack, Jackie, the kid's still around. Yeah, they've got a lot of powerful people still in control. From what I've heard, still a very powerful group. Still have a lot of people on the streets. Still have a lot of strong people there. So, you know, we remember the one thing about Detroit that we just don't see, they don't have a ton of informants. One or two over the years, not many. Detroit has done a lot of things in the history of the United States that we don't give them enough credit for. They have been a long-standing family with a lot of power, a lot of strong people in control. We have to remember, I mean, Detroit goes back to the late 1800s. You look back before the Tocos and the Zerillis, you look at, you know, some of the controls that they had, um, you know, it didn't last uh, some of these guys, but, you know, Tony Gianola, you know, John Vital for a couple of years, singing Sam uh, Catalanotti. And then you get into the Tocos, Jack Zerilli, Tony Zerilli, then the Tocos, then the Jackalonis. Th this has been a wide standing issue. Detroit is still very much around they're still very active. So what do we have? We have seven families that are still around. Philadelphia still has a couple of people. And whether we call them a crime family, I don't know about that. But one thing about Philadelphia is they have a bunch of people that are all friends and they're still around. Are they all engaged in criminal behavior? I don't know. I'm not part of that group. I'm not a part of the mafia. All I do is talk about it. They're still around. Do I call them a crime family of, 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 of the level of ones we just talked about? I don't think, you know, it's really just my opinion. Now, this is where it gets interesting because a lot of people will tell you that uh, Kansas City is still active. Kansas City ain't active. Okay. There's no one there. There might be a couple of old school guys still around um, that at one point were mob members, but 
they're not organized. They don't have a ton going on. Um, you know, most of the people that were around at one point aren't really around anymore. You have a couple of bookmakers probably still around, but nobody doing anything heavy. And I'm actually going to talk to the great Gary Jenkins really soon on the show. And we'll get a lay of the land of what's going on in Kansas City. Gary was a longtime um, cop in, in Kansas City and has a great podcast, Gangland Wire. Go check it out. We'll talk to Gary real soon. Um, so I don't consider them active. West Coast, there's nobody active. Nobody's in Vegas. Nobody's in L.A. Um, there might be a couple of members of other families out there doing some things, but there's no L.A. crime family. There's no San Francisco family anymore. Nobody's in uh, uh, San Diego. Nobody's down in, you know, anywhere. And we talked, look, Seattle was never a crime family. They had a couple of Italian people that ran strip clubs. They're not a mafia. Uh, as far as the South, New Orleans might have a, a, an old guy or two around. There's no family there. Dallas is long gone. Uh, there's not one in Tampa. Now, Florida has a couple of, I'm sure, Gambino people, and I'm quite sure a couple of the families from New York have representation down there, but there's no Tampa mob uh, anymore. Uh, the Traff Canty groups are way long gone. Uh, and then we get up to, to, you know, the Boston area. I don't consider what they have a crime family. Uh, the patriarchal crime family is really on its last legs. Uh, there will be people that tell you it isn't, but I don't think they're, they're real in tune with things. Um, last time I heard uh, the cheese man was still around. Uh, maybe get a couple of guys on the street still. Um, I don't think they're incredibly, um, you know, powerful anymore. A couple of people for sure. Um, do we call them a crime family? I guess. Um, do we think they have much weight? Not really. Um, so I guess we could say that there are seven, maybe eight groups still around New York, the five families, Detroit, Chicago, and I guess Philadelphia. Um, but I think they're down to, you know, not many people either. And they had a recent indictment. We'll see what happens there. Facebook is building tools to enhance safety and security. Over 40 million people are using Facebook's privacy checkup each month. That's nearly 60 times the population of Washington, D.C. Learn more about the work ahead at facebook.com forward slash action. So that's kind of the lay of the land. And I think anyone that tells it different is just kind of trying to blow smoke to you. Um, they're, they're trying to tell you things that I think they think they know. Um, but I just don't think you can call some of this stuff crime families anymore. Um, they're definitely on the legs of, 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 I mean, the patriarch or crime family is not even close to what it once was under, you know, patriarcha, you know, through the, you know, uh, the fifties the, the to, to the mid eighties. Uh, since then, I mean, you had a couple of capable people, you know, baby shacks and, 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 and Peter Lamone and, and a couple of people, but outside of that, uh, it's just not a real pronounced group. So that's kind of the lay of the land. And, and I kind of wanted to answer that question for that individual and a couple of people that asked me, because I get it all the time. Um, there are still some powerful groups out there. Um, now, are they the, any of these families, the foremost uh, crime syndicates in their cities? Absolutely not. I don't think there's any criminal group afraid of, of the mob anymore. I don't think that's anything that's surprising to a lot of people. Um, there are Latin gangs. There are uh, other uh, ethnicity uh, families, other other uh, you know black organized crime, that sort of thing that that are way more powerful in these cities than mob families are. Do I think they still get some things done? Yeah, um, but the piece of the pies shrunk considerably because bookmaking is not what it once was. Loan sharking is not as easy anymore. You're not extorting businesses anymore, really. Um, you know, you're not. Um, you, you know, drug dealing is a lot harder. There's a lot more people doing it now. Uh, other people and other groups are more in control. 
Um, you're not doing co contract hits anymore. Uh, you don't have racketeering and, and, and labor stuff. Uh, construction's still around, but it's not like it once was. Unions aren't as, as easy to access as they once were. So the piece of the pie for the mob has changed considerably. And the quite honest truth is, unless you're in the drug game, um, the real money just isn't there. You know, some of these corners up in Philadelphia and Kensington and, you know, in, in Baltimore and, and, and Chicago and, and, and the Bronx that, that are run by Latin gangs or black gangs, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year compared to, you know, the, the, the fighting over a couple of bookmaking customers in, 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 in some of these neighborhoods. This is not worth it anymore. And these neighborhoods have changed. They're not all Italian anymore. You're not able to, sh to shake a whole block down for extortion money like you were in the 70s and 80s. It's just not happening anymore. The one thing the FBI did at a very high level, whether we agree with how they did it or not, is they completely knocked the feet out of the mob and they put everybody away. And it completely has hurt the mob a lot. And whether you agree with it or not, the mob still very much cares about the mafia. And any shred of we're still in the mob, they're going to take you off the street. Pretty simple. So kind of an interesting look at what we see nowadays. But let's get in uh, to talking about our uh, subject today. The very little known Joe, Joe Beck de Palermo. Let's get into it on the sit down. Joseph Di Palermo was born in 1907 in Little Italy. Um, he would be born and live on Elizabeth Street, uh, right off Houston in Little Italy. And as we talked about last week, and we've talked about many times, uh, Little Italy is one of the main um, kind of forefronts for the American mob in America. Um, most of the time throughout Joe Beck's life, he would live in and out of Little Italy, and most of his bases of operations were in Little Italy. He would ultimately move at one point to the Monroe houses, which um, are in Tribeca, um, really trendy neighborhood now. I'm sure the real estate's quite good there. Uh, Joe Beck had uh, five brothers, had a lot of family members, and most of them ended up following him into the mob, um, interestingly enough. And a lot of them would be part of his crew. His brother Charlie would be uh, involved in his crew, a couple of others. Now, we, we kind of kind of understand what the Lucchese crime family looked like in you know the 20s and 30s. Uh, it wasn't the Lucchese crime family. Back then, it was called the Gagliano crime family. And really kind of when we look at the Lucchese crime family, where it started, it would start back in the 20s originally under a guy called Tommy Reyna. And we talked about Tommy Reyna a little bit last week. Uh, he was kind of the first purveyor of the Lucchese crime family. He would begin kind of working alongside the Morello crime family. He would kind of branch off and do his own thing up in the Bronx. Uh, and ultimately, he'd be taken out. And as we know, many people believe Vito Genovese killed Tommy Reyna. In basically the 30s, right at, right at the beginning of the 30s, Tommy Gagliano would take over and call it the Gagliano crime family. Gagliano was from Corleone, Sicily. And he, as we know, there would be that war that would develop between Masseria and Maranzano. We know what Lucky would end up doing. We've talked about that before. But he really grabbed what was his own family under Reina and took it under his auspice. And this would be the main kind of thing that would take us into the Lucchese crime family. Eventually, um, uh, Gagliano would retire and Tommy Lucchese, who you know, it was one of the great bosses in American history, would take over. And this is around the time where Joe Beck is really coming up. Joe Beck to the Paramount would begin selling drugs really in his teens. And 
One thing about Joe Beck that I always found interesting is he never ended up getting legitimate business. He never took his money and started investing in you know, stores or companies or, or whatever. He was a drug dealer through and through. He was a drug dealer from his teenage years until his death. It was that simple. Joe Beck D. Palermo would be arrested dozens of times in his life. He'd take his first pinch at 18 for selling narcotics. And in his early 20s, he would actually um, really kind of understand how to sell drugs. Heroin was big. And it's funny because a lot of mobsters, as we know, got their start selling drugs. I mean, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky were big time uh, opium pushers back in the 20s. And, you know, during the 20s and 30s, mobsters, for the most part, were very engaged in bootlegging. And at one point, Joe Beck D. Palermo was no different. He was definitely involved in bootlegging. He would take several bootlegging uh, pinches. Um, he didn't look like a gangster. And if you've ever seen Joe Beck, you'll know that I kind of mentioned he looked kind of, you know, kind of bookwormish, but he had the glasses. He was very petite and, and, and skinny and small, kind of, you, know, you, you push him, uh, a gust of wind would knock him over. Um, but he was definitely dangerous and he was definitely tough and he was good at selling drugs. It was that simple. He would really start to make kind of a bit of a, a crew of himself in, uh, in Little Italy. He would have his brothers involved, Tony, Pete, Charlie, and he had a couple soldiers as well, including Crazy Dom Truscello and Anthony Tortorello. Now, um, as I said, we have to kind of go to the life of Carmine Galanti, where we really kind of understand what Joe Beck was doing. Joe Beck was very close to Carmine Galanti. He was very close to Vito Genovese, all of which were big drug pushers. And when we talked about Carlo Gambino, we talked about his ability to really create different ways to sell drugs. And we'll get to kind of the connection to the Catronis and all that sort of thing and how the mob really was able to create a, a major thoroughfare for drugs, the French connection. And Joe Beck was really at the forefront of that. But I do want to quickly talk a little bit about something we talked about last week in the Genovese episode. As we mentioned, Genovese goes over to Italy. He becomes close with Mussolini. The problem that Mussolini has, though, is in America, there's an individual who runs a newspaper that's anti-fascist called Il Mortello. And as we know, Genovese takes on this favor for Mussolini and has Tresca whacked. Now, the mob had tried to kill Tresca before. They were never able to do it, but they finally had their chance. Uh, and on um, January um, 11th, 1943, Carlo Tresca leaves his apart or his uh, company at 15th Street and Fifth Avenue. When a black Ford pulls up, a short squat gunman gets out. As we know, it was Galanti. Interestingly enough, the driver of that car that night was Joe Beck di Palermo. So Joe Beck was known to be involved in a couple of very profile big time things. And we'll talk about some of the other things he was involved with, but he was definitely not just a drug dealer. He was a great drug dealer, but he was also someone that was very much able to take care of people. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, when we look back at killers in mob history, no one will ever bring Carlo Carmine Galanti up, but he was an incredible hitter. He killed a lot of people. Yeah, we remember in 1928, he killed the cop and wounded a cop two separate times. He was a dangerous guy. He had no problem killing people. Uh, he was very much tough and he was very feared. Uh, and Galanti was very close to Joe Beck. Joe Beck also 
um, would, would continue to get arrested. He would always be involved in these schemes, though, not just drug dealing. He'd be involved in counterfeiting, kiting American Express checks, all sorts of different things. And I really want to get into the, the kind of the crux of what Joe Beck and Carmine Galanti were doing. As we know, they were both big time drug dealers. And what they were able to do in the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, they set up a pipeline to Montreal, Quebec, Canada, through a family called the Catroni crime family. They had connections in France, in Corsica, and they were able to import huge amounts of heroin into Montreal and then into the United States. As we know, Galanti was in the Bonanno crime family. They were very close with their Montreal people. And Joe Beck, Carmine Galanti, and Big John Armento, who was another big-time drug dealer in the Lucchese crime family, they were getting tons and tons of heroin through uh, the Gatroni crime family. This was huge for their business. This was huge in putting billions of dollars in drugs on the market, on the map, and really allowed them to become very rich men. They were big time drug kingpins. And it's funny because Joe Beck really started to spend some of his money. He was very well known um, in some of the reading that I did. He was very well known to be a very interesting, snappy dresser. Uh, he loved to color coordinate. He wore big, big watches and uh, always had these really interesting outfits on. He'd wear a lot of um, kind of bright colors and snake skin shoes and always drive, drove a nice car. He always had a, a, a good, good looking hair. And he was an ugly guy, he kind of had that Corrado Soprano look to him, but he was someone that definitely cared about his appearance. He definitely looked the part, if you will. Um, and it was kind of interesting because he didn't actually look like a gangster, but he sure dressed like one. Um, and as I said, alongside um, one of his friends, Big John Armenta, they would make a lot of money uh, in this big um, heroin connection. And he would use his crew as well, uh, Joe Beck, to, to really corner the market. He was not only wholesaling, but he also had uh, pushers on the street. Um, all this stuff was going up. And we'd have to believe that a lot of the uh, black gangs, a lot of the different uh, uh, organizations around Manhattan and other areas were very much getting their uh, drug straight from the French connection. This would make more money really than maybe anything the mob has ever been involved in. Yeah, we look at some of the schemes over the years, obviously the gas tax scheme, Michael Franzese was a big one, but the French connection made a lot of money for the American mafia. Um, it would start there to come apart in the late 50s. Um, big John Armento and other people would, would go to the Appalachian meeting uh, Joe Beck didn't go to the Appalachian meeting, but things were starting to come apart for uh, all these guys, because in 1958, all of them would be hit in a very big drug case. And this would be a big thing for uh, the principal people involved, including Vito Genovese, Joe Valachi, uh, a lot of people, John Armento, Joe Beck de Palermo, they would all be hemmed up in a very big case involving uh, heroin. And this was kind of that crime case of the century, a big drug case towards the end of the 50s. And yeah, this is a big problem for all the people involved, because um, it was pretty clear that the feds had what they needed. Um, and, you know, look, whether we agree that Vito Genovese was a part of it, I think we kind of talked about it last week, the thought of him being involved with that was kind of ridiculous, probably just because why would the boss of the family still be involved with selling drugs kind of like they were? 
Um, but, you know, they hemmed him up. They wanted him off the street. And they were able to get him off the street. Uh, they would all eventually be convicted. Joe Beck would get a long prison sentence. He would get 15 years alongside Big John. And, you know, interestingly enough, I actually wanted to bring something up. One of the people involved in this case as well is kind of a pretty familiar name. Um, if we've ever seen Goodfellas, the um, the Billy Bats character, an individual called William Bentvena, um, he was a part of the Gambino crime family, but he was actually in the late 50s um, very connected with Big John Ormento. Um, and, you know, alongside Tony Mira and, and Carmen Galanti and Joe Beck, Ben Vena was actually pushing a lot of drugs into Connecticut. Um, he was uh, known to have some connections up there, and he would actually be uh, indicted in the early 60s as being a part of that case. And he would get 15 years and go serve it in Danbury. So weirdly enough, there were a lot of big names in this case. Um, and that would be interestingly enough in the film Goodfellas, when he's released from prison, he would be released in prison for this drug case. Um, so kind of interesting, kind of a weird connection. But what would happen in jail would become very interesting because as we know, Joe Valachi was a part of the um, kind of the, the, the Genovese crime family. He was involved with Vito Genovese. Uh, he was a drug dealer. He got hemmed up in that case. But what happens in prison would involve Joe Beck de Palermo and really would change the mob forever. Um, during their prison stay, Genovese wants to kill Bellacci. He feels like he is a loose end. Genovese says, we got to get him killed. The problem is Velocci is smart enough to realize that Vito wants to kill him. And the person that was supposedly asked to kill him was Joe Beck de Palermo. Instead, as we talked about, instead of killing Joe de Palermo, he mistakes another inmate and beats him to death with a concrete pipe or a steel pipe. He bludgeons him to death. He then gets hit with his murder and decides to flip and completely changes the pattern of the mafia. And this was a major problem because if this had never happened, you know, then like if Joe Beck didn't try to kill him and Vita didn't try to kill him, then who knows what Joe Velocci did. Now Joe Velocci ended up cooperating and pulled the mask off of, of the mob and, and kind of made it clear that the mob was a real thing. And that was that it was a big problem. Now, Joe Beck de Palermo would eventually get out of prison, um, but he would never stop selling drugs. Um, he would go right back to the streets in the 70s and start selling drugs again. He would be arrested in the 70s into the 80s. He would also at one point start selling quaaludes, uh, from what I understand. And there's actually an interesting connection. He would start selling uh, quaaludes with an individual called Salvatore Lombardo. They called him Sally Dogs. Uh, Sally Dogs was, interestingly enough, the... Um, the uncle of Big Ange Rayola, if you've ever seen Mob Wives. Um, Sally Doggs was a Genovese crime family guy, made a lot of money in the drug game. Uh, and in the late 70s, him and Joe Beck would get jammed up for selling Quaaludes. So really until the end of Joe Beck's life, remember, Joe Beck was born in 1907. Um, still in the 80s, at, at you know almost into the 90s. Um, you know, in his 80s, he's still selling drugs on the street. Joe Beck knew nothing else. He never again had a legit business. He never had any companies. He never made his money in other things. His money made, he made millions through the drug game and he never gave it up. 
Ultimately, though, Joe Beck would die uh, in 1992 at the age of 85. He was a guy that never wanted to stop. He didn't care what he was doing. You have to wonder how many lives Joe Beck de Palermo wasted uh, due to white powder. It's almost inconceivable to think about how much money and how many drugs he put on the street, how many how many pounds and kilos of drugs were on the street because of Joe Beck. And when we look at an American crime family, I've talked about this before, we will hear in the Lucchese crime family about the big boys, Anthony Casso, Tommy Lucchese, um, you know, Vicka Musso, all these big boys. But we don't always talk about these guys that shape these families into what they are. And during the golden age of the mob from the forties until the late sixties, Joe Beck de Palermo was one of the biggest earners in the mob. You won't hear about him. You won't hear him mentioned. You'll hear about the other guys that take all the, 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 the love. And remember, Joe Beck was never on a ruling body. He was never a, a consigliere. He was never an underboss. He was just a guy that ran a crew. And he was one of the people that allowed these families in the heyday of when they were to really rule this country. Okay, this is what your your drug cartels now are joe beck was your original drug pusher he was the guy and i've heard other places like you know uh, the new york mafia and other other publications call him the dean of drug dealing and that's really what he was you know some of these websites like new york mafia do a great job at at, at really kind of going into some of these smaller characters and they called him the dean of drug dealing and they were so so right that's really what he was he was the drug dealer before the, the black gangs of the 80s and people like Frank Lucas and Frank Matthews. Joe Beck was that guy. Him and, v, him and Vito, uh, or not Vito, Carmen Galanti, Big John Armento, these guys were pushing tons and tons of drugs on the streets. And during the heyday, people like these guys were the ones that kept these groups going the way they did. Not incredibly deep biography today. But really just someone we have to look back and, and just kind of be in awe of in, in a criminal standpoint. Guy pushed a lot of weight and did it really until his end. It's all he knew from the streets of Little Italy in the 1910s, you know, all the way until the 90s. This guy was a drug pusher. It's that simple. Joe Beck D. Palermo, an interesting guy for sure. Uh, I know a lot of people are saying, where the hell is Blackjack Fletcher? Blackjack is fighting a pretty nasty uh, sickness. He's still sick, not feeling well. Um, he lives down in Florida, so there's always the weird humidity and weather. Um, so hopefully he feels better and we get him back soon. Um, but, um, you know, right now it is just there's a lot going on. Um, and once we get past the tournament, you know, things will kind of calm down. We'll get into the spring and summer seasons. And you know, we still have so many great people to do here on the show. Um, as I said, next week, we're going to do a really good interview. I hope you guys like it. We haven't heard much from Frank Fortolino. There's really no interviews with him out there. This guy is truly one of those untouched people that really has became someone that, that cooperated and moved on with his life. He's not out there on YouTube. He's not, you know, getting money from a, a website, you know, talking about his crimes. Um, he's moved on in his life. And we talked about that. We talked about what he's up to now. He's made a whole new life for himself. And, you know, he accepted. He told me many times, I'm a rat. I'm an informant. I did what I did. Um, and, you know, I've always said that I don't agree with the people that do that. Um, I think they all have a story, though, and they're all going to tell their own. So I urge you to listen to it next week with an open mind. I think 
quite honestly, I think you're going to enjoy it. I really do. Um, so check that out next week here on the show. As always, I just want you to do just a couple of things for me, please. Um, we do the show for free. We don't ask for much. If you can, if you're new to the show, um, you haven't done it yet, you're on Spotify or iTunes, please give us a five-star review. It'd really help us out. And we appreciate what you say about the show. I see occasionally we'll get negative reviews. Um, you know, you always have people that want to you know, get on you for every little thing you get wrong. And you know, maybe they don't agree with our comments, but we do generally really try to, to give you some facts maybe you didn't know, or really try to tell you a story you didn't know. Um, there's always going to be people that have problems with what we do, but we just ask you, be kind. Um, you know, we know we're not everybody's cup of tea. If you don't like the show, um, you know, just don't listen to it. Um, but we thank all of you for the great reviews that we you leave. And if you feel like you want to leave a review, please do so. Uh, check us out on Twitter at the sit down seven, and please go check us out on YouTube. Uh, if you want more great mafia content, I try to put out videos on YouTube uh, twice a week. Usually put one out on Tuesday and on Saturday. I've had some really good videos that people have liked. So make sure you check those out. We also have a couple of big shows to still do. Um, we're going to do the Marcello episode, Trafficanti, Sam Giancana. We've got so many people still to go through here on the sit down. So uh, we will catch you all next week. I hope you all have a great week. I hope you enjoy if you're watching hoops. Hope you enjoy it. If you're out there enjoying some of the early spring stuff, have fun. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. Um, kind of a fun one today. We talk a little current stuff and we talk about a real interesting guy in Joe Beck D. Palermo. So uh, thank you for listening. I will catch you all next week. I am Jeff Nadeau. We'll see you next week here on the sit down. Bye-bye. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.